John chapter 19, verse 1. So it says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. You'll recall that uh, what was going on was Pilate is trying to, it's, it's a lame excuse, but he's trying to release Jesus. And, uh, you know, the tradition is that they would release one criminal uh, at the Passover for the nation of Israel. And he offers them, uh, or he offers them Jesus and they instead choose Barabbas. So they're, they're choosing an insurrectionist, a thief, and a murderer over Jesus. So in 19 verse 1, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And uh, this is again uh, a lame effort on Pilate's part to free Jesus, figuring that if he punishes him uh, to some degree, then uh, he'll, you know, the, the people will be appeased, sort of their bloodlust will be met, and uh, he'll be able to release Jesus. Now, I've had some discussions with different pastors. And uh, some people have differing opinions, but everything I've been able to study, uh, the Roman scourging, we commonly hear, even from really good pastors, and I'm not saying they're not good pastors because they say something different, uh, they say Jesus received 39 lashes. Well, 39 lashes is a Jewish whipping or scourging. But he's not being scourged by the Jews. He's being scourged by the Romans. And the Roman scourging never stopped at 39 lashes. There, there wasn't anything about it that they were trying to. 39 lashes had to do with uh, the, the scripture saying that 40 lashes was excessive. So they would usually, as Jews, lay in 30, 38 lashes and on the 39th one, just sort of drape it across you even so that the la even the last lash was sort of a lashing of leniency and a demonstration for the Jews that, look, I'm obeying God's law and not, you know, punishing you mercilessly. It isn't being done by the Jews. The Jews don't actually have anything to do with it. And in fact, as you see it, um, he's not even doing it because they've requested it, nor is he doing it uh, in an effort to, uh, you know, meet their legal requirements. Uh, he's scourging Jesus according to the Roman method of scourging. Very often, a Roman scourging was a death sentence. Um, they could kill you with a single stroke. Uh, on a cat of nine tails, uh, you know, wooden staff about 18 inches long, uh, leather uh, braided over that on the whip end of it. As it came off, they would break that into nine separate tails. And that was of various lengths. It's usually around six feet long. They would braid into that pieces of broken glass and pottery and lead, and bone, and anything that was hard, and brutal, and damaging. Uh, many of the historic accounts, like Josephus, 
described how the scourging with the cat of nine tails would damage skeletal tissue. It would tear into the body that deeply. Um, at this time when Jesus is being scourged, uh, there are several methods. Uh, they would uh, tie a man with just a person, man or woman, with just their back exposed to a pole, arms straight above their head, uh, feet down, and scourge their back, their, their, their arms, head, back, legs, all the way down. Or uh, the most common method was to suspend them in the air between four posts. So they would put a rock or a stump or a stool in the middle, so they would lay you over on the pit of your stomach and stretch your four limbs out to the four posts so that you're hanging in the air with your full body exposed, and they would tear you apart with a cat of nine tails from head to toe. And uh, if it was a punishment, just a punishment, your crime had already been discovered and they were punishing you, then they would usually just let the ends of the whip land on you as they lashed back very quickly so that it would just tear at you, ripping your flesh open, of top and bottom, head to foot, sparing only the pit of your stomach where you were resting. And the idea there was, and they, and they, if you passed out, they would revive you, uh, you know, bring you, back awake um they uh in the process of doing this uh th when it was just punishment they much didn't care if you died um they the uh the romans in their pagan approach would bring a goat they would slit its throat at the feet of the executioner the one who's going to perform this task and let all the blood drain out of this animal on the ground in honor of their pagan gods. They would drag the cat of nine tails back and through, forth through the blood and the mud and then lay into you, making sure that as many lashes they could pass through that spot, hoping that it would lay infection into your body. And just about the time, you know, weeks later, your body's trying to knit up the infections would set in and then you'd perish anyway. So, you know, the process by which they did this was unthinkably horrendous. It just, it was the most gruesome, hideous thing you could imagine. And the purpose was, you, if you survived, if perchance you made it through the whole beating and came out the other side and survived the infection, then you're going to be a ruined ball of scar tissue, just unable to even function. Your, your appendages are all going to be torn up and not function right. And every time people see you, uh, they're going to you know, be shocked and horrified and, and maybe even ask or whisper to one another, what happened to this person? And the response is going to be, they were scourged by Rome. What did they do? They stole. They, you know, committed a crime. And obviously, I'm never going to do that. You know what I'm saying? Whatever, whatever it was 
that person did deserving of that punishment, it would invoke fear. And Rome didn't care if you dropped dead. Rome didn't care if you went through the process and you were scourged and, and then dropped dead, then people would say a similar thing. He was scourged and died. Why? Because in this case, he was the king of the Jews. So don't ever claim to be king of Jews because you could end up like that. So, so, so you know, here he is being torn apart uh, for our sake. To what degree did this happen? It might have been, uh, you know, even when we watch uh, The Passion of the Christ, you know, Mel Gibson's movie, that in all likelihood doesn't even come close to the severity of what Jesus went through. And, you know, some of that is seen in this and in the writings of the prophets as he presents Jesus to the people, just destroyed as a human being. So scourged, I mean, that puts it very quickly and very lightly. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put a purple robe, put him uh, put on him a purple robe. So uh, the thorns are huge also, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of an inch and a half in their shortest, up to three inches in their longest, you know, knit together, wound around. And then it says plated on his head. Um, the uh, way it's written is it was beaten onto his head with a reed so that, you know, it's just driven through his flesh. And this, this thing is, uh, you know, uh, a massive injury in itself. The, you know, element that's always spiritually interesting is that thorns were a result of our sin. That because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, that was the curse pronounced upon Adam, that, you know, the ground's going to give you thorns and thistles. And now Jesus is being crowned with the resulting curse of Adam's sin. It's remarkable. The same can be said of you and I, that Jesus Christ was absorbing the wounds from my sin, your sin, and, and taking these things for us. You know, mockingly, the robe of purple placed upon him, that's going to be taken off his body later. And, you know, you can imagine uh, that your flesh torn apart and this purple robe placed upon you and it coagulates into your wounds and then it's pulled off from you later. You know, Jesus, the torment that this man is going through is incredible incredible what he's enduring for our sake then they said hail king of the jews and they struck him with their hands so he's being beaten and the, you know scripture tells us that he he was struck and they put a bag over his head so that he couldn't even see the blows coming and they mocked him saying you know prophesy tell us who hit you and so this this torture and torment is been non-stop since he was arrested. Pilate then went out again and said to them, the crowd, the mob, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault 
in him. And, you know, that's a mockery. Uh, you know, this whole issue of I wash my hands and I find no fault in the man. If he found no fault in the man and he was really wanting to be innocent, he wouldn't have carried out all of this punishment. It's it's just words. That's all it is. Find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Um, in the Greek language, uh, there's this insistence in what Pilate is saying of trying to convince the people of that statement, behold the man. The idea is, as the prophet said, he was beaten so badly. His visage was so scarred that he was unrecognizable as a human. So he he's marched out here just wrecked, and Pilate is insisting, this really is the man you gave me. So he's so unrecognizable that he's having to put strong assurances down to them of the, I'm not I'm not making this up this isn't like some switcheroo this really is the Jesus that you handed over to me you know it lends more to that idea of how unrecognizable he was therefore when the chief priests and the officers saw him they cried out saying crucify him crucify him Pilate said to them you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Um, they've already had the discussion about how they can't do that. You know, they, they've brought him in the previous chapter and demanded that Pilate execute him, and the exchange goes back and forth about you see to it according to your own law, and they say, you know, that basically... Capital punishment has been taken away from us. When this is necessary, we bring people to you. So we're here demanding that you do this. The Jews answered, we have we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, today, the Jews insist that the Messiah who is still going to come uh, there, most, most of, a great portion of Israel is completely secular. They, they don't look to any religious fulfillment. Uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, Moses, um, they more or less just don't deal with it. It's, it's there, it's part of their nation's history, it's celebrated, but they don't take it seriously at all. It's just a thing that is, you know, in their history somehow, you know, for, for a lot of them, it might be true. It's probably not true. They don't deal with it. They, they avoid uh, having to come conclu to conclusions by not even examining what's there. Uh, the people who do hold to the scriptures, who do examine the writings of Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament, who understand there is a Messiah, the ones that don't believe in Jesus insist that, okay, there is a Messiah and he is still yet to come, but he's not going to be the son of God. He's going to be just a man. And they cling to what was said to Moses, how there would come a man like unto Moses. So they're just looking for a regular old man born 
just like Moses was born, of a mother and father who would be a great political and spiritual leader. That's what they're looking for. So, so to them, uh, this statement of being the son of God is something that's today rejected. In their mind, they're, they're saying, no, uh, you know, the Messiah will not be the son of God. Now, at this point in John chapter 19, the people were looking for the Son of God. They, they had heard what Isaiah said about a son would be born and how you know, the father would refer to him as the only God. So, so they understood and were looking for the Son of God, at least in title, name, and reference. So Jesus claiming to be the Son of God to them it's only unacceptable from the position of they don't want Jesus. The term at the time, the son of God, was not something that they rejected or didn't hold to. It's just that they're they're waiting for the conquering hero to ride in on a white horse and lowly Jesus humbly comes riding on the colt of the donkey, the servant of everyone. That's unacceptable to them. So the fact that he's claiming to be the son of God, uh, they despise him for that, and they, they want him put to death. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So uh, the miracles that are going on, in Jesus' ministry for all of these years, both Pilate and Herod have heard about. The, the, the public is all astir with this man, Jesus. And, you know, he Pilate, trying to avoid the situation, sends him off to Herod. And Herod wants a sign. He wants to see a miracle. So here... Pilate's at least got it in the back of his mind, and there's the element we're not seeing here that Matthew tells us of how Pilate's wife had had this dream and sent a message to him saying, don't have anything to do with that righteous man, Jesus. So miracles, Herod's fascination, his wife's dream, now the Jews are saying this man claims to be the son of God. Now, for Pilate, that has also the gravity of their pagan belief systems because they hold to a spiritual sense of things like that, the whole pantheon of Roman gods. You have lots of demigods who are human beings that are sons of God, and this whole, this whole picture freaks him right out. Miracles and Herod and wife's dream and demigods and what am I dealing with? So ask Jesus, you know, where do you come from? What's your source of origin is what he's saying. Then Pilate said to him, verse 10, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And I wonder how Jesus said this response. Soft, gentle, kind and understanding, forceful, directly into the eyes. How did this response come? You could have no power 
at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What a remarkable statement, and it does shake Pilate to the core. You know, this, you know, he's already asked him, what is truth? And Jesus has made the statement that I am truth. Now 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So there's some things that must have gone on that aren't recorded here, or perhaps even in all of the scripture, that he's going through some efforts to try to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So they're, they're going to dwell on this political point and really try to make this that Jesus is an insurrectionist. Jesus is trying to seize power, rise to the throne, allow the people to revolt and carry him to the throne. The Jews are going to just harp on this one issue of Jesus trying to be king. So uh, this whole interchange that goes on, excuse me, with here with uh, Caesar and, or excuse me, with Pilate and the crowd over Caesar and Jesus. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried away with him, away with him, crucify him. Now, before we move on, verse 14 is significant in that it was the preparation day for the Passover. So when you get to this issue and, and it isn't something that we need to harp on at all. But when people get to this issue of Good Friday, and they're trying to make it be that any portion of a day equals a day. So when Jesus went in the tomb on Friday night, that was the first day. And then uh, when he was in there on Saturday and then risen on Sunday, then uh, that's three days. That's not true at all. Okay. So when we see that Jesus was risen uh, on Sunday morning, then you have to go, he was in the tomb Saturday all day. He was in the tomb all day Friday, and he was in the tomb all day Thursday. So you come down to good Wednesday is, is really, Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday. And interestingly enough, historically, we know that this preparation day for the Passover fell on Wednesday. So this is not the preparation day for the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. So, so everybody that tries to force it into being that Jesus was put into the tomb on Friday and that the, 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 the Sabbath day they were preparing for was the regular Sabbath of the week on Saturday. Uh, there's there's no reason to even argue about it. Uh, we know with a certainty that the preparation day for the Passover fell on Wednesday, the preparation day. And so then a week of celebration would have taken place until 
you know, the following Wednesday when they completed the Passover. So it's about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's uh, a really unfortunate thing to see believers do when they put their trust in politics. We have to be, as believers, involved in politics to be salt and light in every environment that we're given opportunity. If we don't weigh in on the political issues when our culture allows for it, then we are contributing to the deterioration. By non-involvement, we are contributing to it. You know, if we were in a different country where the citizens had no influence over the politics, then we would still be responsible for being the moral conscience of our culture. You know, spiritually, this is our responsibility. You know, within this culture, we need to be, but when you move to the place where not you know even inadvertently the theme of your heart becomes we have no other king than caesar i've met a lot of christians that shift that far over you know when some godless tyrant is in control they act like god has fallen off the throne god is still on the throne he wields as much power as he did before the vote was counted. There's nothing has changed. You know, our, our God, that Isaiah that was saying that, you know, they've lost a good godly king and the nation's suddenly gripped with fear and mourning and then he has that vision of the Lord seated upon his throne. Yeah, once you get your vision fixed in the right place, there isn't a concern. We, we, we are never restricted to only having an earthly leader. We have no king but Caesar. That, that's not our cry. That's not our statement. 16, then he delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called, uh, called the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Several things there that are spiritually important. You know, the crucifixion, um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, want to insist that Christianity's veneration of the cross is inappropriate. And they uh, point to the fact that the word that is often translated 
the cross or the crucifix is the crux. And the crux originally used by the, the Syrians and the Assyrians was a straight stake. And they did nail their hands directly above their head and their feet directly below their body. So straight stake. Um, but by the time the Romans came around, and the Romans implemented that too in the beginning of the empire, uh, having learned that form of execution from the Assyrians, but uh, they were of the mindset that their victims died far too rapidly, uh, within a matter of hours. Because of their uh, shoulders, you know, hands directly above their head, can't bear the body weight, the shoulders pressing into the neck, choking out the carotid arteries, they, they choke themselves to death in a matter of hours. They convulse and try to, you know, pick up out of that. But, it, you know, the, the Assyrians didn't really care if somebody died quickly or took a long time. They just wanted them dead. The Romans, like with the scourging, wanted this theatrical display. So um, they would save crucifixions until they could crucify a bunch of people at once. So, um, you know, if they got one guilty person um, sentenced to death by crucifixion, sometimes they'd wait a very long time until they had 10, 14 people so they could crucify a great number all at once. So it would be this public spectacle of death. And they would do it in a very prominent position as they are doing it here in the middle of the city on a hill. Everyone can see Golgotha and the people up there dying and wailing and crying and begging for mercy. They loved the entrance and the exits of the cities to crucify people with. If there was just an entrance and an exit out the other side, great. Let's, let's split this group of people in half. And we'll crucify half of them at the entrance and half of them at the exit. Uh, there are historic accounts of people living for days on the cross. Um, you know, the, the Roman guards um, asking the people on the cross to stop asking for water. To just allow the dehydration to kill them. Because the order had been given to them of if they ask for water give it to them, which just drags the whole process on. Uh, so, you know, this issue of the cross, by the time you come to Jesus' day, the Romans have been done with the straight pole, stake, crux, crucifixion for more than 100 years. They haven't used it at all. So when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or you talk to people who have fallen under the sway of their false teachings, it, you know, it's it's just one more way that the witnesses are trying to downgrade the legitimacy of Christianity. You know, they're saying, look, these Christians don't even know that Jesus wasn't crucified on you know this cross like we see being displayed. He was crucified on a straight stake, and they'll take you to these occasions from. You know, historic evidence that the cross was this crux. No, it is a cross-membered beam that they are being crucified with. And uh, the whole point is they want their death to be a long, drawn-out process. That straight pole stake hasn't been used for over 100 years. It's been abandoned 
by the Romans. So Jesus is being crucified on the cross, the place of the skull. Um, to this day, it bears the appearance of a skull. Uh, the way it was quarried and hammered out and uh, rock removed, it has, you can look it up online, it, it bears the appearance of a human skull. So um, now he's crucified there between uh, two thieves, one on the right, one on the left, and therein is a beautiful picture of salvation. You know, for all of the people that want to argue about predestination, want to argue about can you, you know, lose your salvation, all these various things. This picture was orchestrated by the Lord. The man who accepts Jesus is told, today you'll be with me in paradise. The man who rejects Jesus goes to his place of punishment. It's as simple. Salvation is as simple as that. There's no baptism that occurs here. There's no religious rituals that occur here. There's no entering into belonging to a denomination or a church that occurs here. This is just a man going from cursing Jesus with the other thief to recognizing we're the ones who are deserving of this death and this man's done nothing wrong. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. Simple as that. That's salvation. You add anything to it, and you're creating a false teaching. Jesus plus anything equals salvation is false. Jesus alone is salvation. Jesus equals salvation. Jesus plus membership. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. That's, that is false teaching. Jesus only is the source of salvation. So it says in verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, this was the common practice of the Romans, that whatever you did would be that you were being crucified for or punished or put to death for, that would be displayed. So as everybody hears you screaming and dying and their heads are turned, right there posted will be a sign that says thief, rapist, murderer, insurrectionist, whatever your crime was. What's Jesus' crime? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's what's posted over his head. What a remarkable accusation. They've got nothing more to say about him than he's Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And in typical Roman fashion, it says, then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Everybody spoke one of these languages in this community. So even if you know they couldn't read it in Hebrew, they could definitely read it in Greek or Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but you know, rather is what they're saying. He said, I am the king of the Jews. Your, your, your sign is wrong. Pilate answered, 
what I have written, I have written. And the implication in the tone is it is correct. It isn't just I wrote it, I'm not changing it. His his statement is um, by implication it is correct. I'm I'm not going to stand here and argue with you about it. I'm not going to change it. Uh, that is the truth of this man's circumstance. Twenty three. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, not that they are saying that. You know, the quote bracket ends, you know, at whose it shall be. The, the word of God is telling us that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. And I always love the way the scripture describes that of, you know, which direction are we looking at this? That the Lord knew these things were going to happen, so therefore he had it written? Or is it that the Lord wrote those things back there and now they're being fulfilled? Because he stands outside time looking at this and seeing this occur over here says back there, you know, you probably ought to write this down so that when they get there, they'll know that this was supposed to occur. So why don't we put our bookmark there for just a second and turn to Psalm 22. We'll do this a couple times before we're done in John tonight. Psalm 22. This is really quite a a beautiful chunk of scripture beginning at verse 11. Uh, in regard to Jesus' death, it's, it's kind of astonishing how perfect and accurate it is. Psalm 22, verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. I wonder when you read, certain of the prophets you read, and you get the sense that they knew they were having a futuristic vision. Very often as you read the Psalms, I'm left wondering, how much did they know as they wrote these things that it was going to be prophetic, that there was something futuristic about what they were saying? So there is none to help me. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint from hanging on that cross. My heart is like wax. It's literally going to pour out his side before this is all done. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. You know, in particular, they divide his garments among them, and for clothing they cast lots. But that passage, and, and more of it, before verse 11 and after 19, pertains to his crucifixion. The psalmist was writing so clearly about this occasion and Jesus' death. It's remarkable. Back in John 19, looking at verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, she, just that she was from uh, Magdal. So when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John who's writing this, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then she said, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now, I want to pause there for just a second because there are those that come from the background of Roman Catholicism that point at verse 27 and say, this is the evidentiary verse that tells us we should honor Mary as our spiritual mother. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I don't mean to mock those people in any way because if we're going to say that, then somehow John should be venerated also as the son of the church. I mean, woman, behold your son. So what? So now we got to elevate John if we're going to elevate Mary from this passage. That's not what's going on at all. It seems Joseph has passed away. We, we don't hear from him through most of the Gospels, you know, right in the beginning, we, we get those views of him and the care for Jesus coming into the world and, you know, going and finding him at the temple, and then he's gone. We come to several points in the Gospels where you can see Jesus and the brothers are accompanying Mary and caring for her, no Joseph. Now you come to this moment of Jesus' death, and culturally, this was Jesus' responsibility as oldest son to transfer the authority over his mother to someone. Sometimes it was the next eldest brothers. Other times it was an individual of particular emotional closeness, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Jesus is saying to Mary, all that I did to care for you, John will now do. John is going to look out for you. John is going to care for you. You treat him as your son, like you treated me as your son. And John, you treat her as a mother. You take care of her. And that's simply what it is. It's, it's nothing more than a transference of legal authority to Mary's well-being. This is Jesus' welfare program. She, she is a widow, and her eldest son is passing, and someone needs to care of her. John, I'm putting it on your shoulders. you got to take care of this woman. And you can see it right there. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. He, he provided for her. He cared for her from that moment forward. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So he literally takes this drink to accomplish what we read next. It says, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He shouted to tell us die. It's all completed. I've accomplished everything that needed to be finished. Exclamation point. I don't know. I'm sure we've all had that experience where we're trying to speak. And as we read, you know, in Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue clings to my jaws. Okay. He is parched from that rapid inhale and exhale of death that has been overtaking him. And he needs to have his throat cleared so that he can say it is finished. He accomplished all that the Lord had ever intended. I mean, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, dwelling on that last statement, he gave up his spirit. Um, some years ago, I frequently mentioned false teachers by name, and I, when I do, I try to accompany some examples of their false teaching uh, so that people get an understanding of why I would say someone is a false teacher. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher that's widely respected within Christianity. There are many things that Joyce says that are off base, and they're off base pretty big. But one of the biggest errors that she teaches, and and she, you can still find it in print, you can still find it in recordings, and she does not renounce it. She will shy away from discussions about it. And uh, you can find a recording on YouTube where she's being confronted over this teaching. And she basically tells the people, you would not ever be capable of understanding this teaching because I received it directly from God. Therefore, it is true. Okay. The teaching is this. That Jesus was merely a man like Moses. He was beyond other human beings, but he was merely a man. No, miraculously conceived, she'll agree with that, but he was just a man. It was at his baptism by John that he received the Holy Spirit. And that's what made him so supernatural. See, they go, we are as capable of Jesus. Benny Hinn will say, I am a little God. I can create with the word. By faith, I can create and bring things into existence. Joyce Meyer says, Jesus at the baptism received the Holy Spirit. And we recognize, right, the Holy Spirit descended and stayed upon him. But there position is he wasn't God until receiving that Holy Spirit and that all of the ministry takes place 
because the Holy Spirit is upon him in that way. And at his death, he gives up that spirit. And she says he actually becomes a man again and goes to hell, like the place of torment and punishment with the angels of Satan, and that he's tortured there by the demonic hosts for three days until the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to him in hell, and he's the first being that is born again in all of history. You know, spiritually born again, and that's why he's able to be resurrected, is because he's born again in hell and emerges from hell. Benny Hinn's adopted this. Kenneth Copeland has adopted parts and pieces of this. Joyce Meyer has, you know, I think that the way she shies away from strong discussions about this shows you how much she knows she's off base. But she's never renounced the teaching. It still stands in her record of false teaching. So, my point is this, just like the day you and I die, we're going to give up our spirit and we're going to commend it into God's hands. Not the same way Jesus did. Jesus did it with the full understanding of God. He surrenders his spirit over to the care and protective hands of God. He enters the presence of God by departing from his body. So just to say, it isn't some weird thing about Jesus becoming a man and dying in this moment and the Holy Spirit departing from him. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. And there's a bunch of people at that point who want to say, see, it was Saturday. Well, it says right after this, for that Sabbath was a high day, meaning a high Sabbath day. Okay, the Saturday that, that occurs each week, that's not, that's not a high Sabbath. Uh, that's your normal Sabbath. It's a holy day, but it's not a high Sabbath day. Those are the days of Jewish veneration and religious celebration. So, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break the legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. As Jesus said in psalm through the psalmist i am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted within me his blood is literally separated into the platelets and the plasma and when they stab through his side the blood and water spills out of jesus he's been dead for some time hanging on the cross when they finally pierce him in the side he who has seen this testifies, and his testimony is true. John, again, speaking in the third person, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Speaking of the Passover lamb, when in Exodus, 
they were preparing to leave out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, in one house, the Passover lamb shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. You know, the shadow of what was coming in the crucifixion of Jesus. 37 of John 19, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The soldiers and John, he just told us, I saw these things, and I'm telling you they're true. And there is the eventual fulfillment where Israel itself will look upon Jesus and understand him as their Messiah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. So the, the past fulfillment of those who witnessed the crucifixion, the future fulfillment of the day where Israel comes to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. 19 verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who we read about in John chapter 3, leader of the Jews, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, extremely costly burial preparation that we're seeing here. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So a fulfillment of the scripture that tells us Jesus would not see corruption in that he's not even going to be laid in a tomb where other people have been laid and they've decomposed. He's going into a fresh tomb. He's going to be in there alone. He's going to be there for three days, three nights, and then he will be resurrected. So again, uh, you know, a great fulfillment of the scripture. And you know, we're looking forward to seeing that resurrection in the uh, final two chapters. And you also get to see the resurrection of Peter because he spiritually is in the place where he feels like he's died having denied Jesus, and Jesus is going to resurrect Peter in uh, that. And, and there's a, you know, sort of three-day fulfillment there, and that Peter denied him three times, and Jesus is going to verbally restore him three times. So it's a wonderful picture. Why don't we stand and we'll pray.